This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, I've got John Mark Hicks with us, and we're going to be talking about the sacraments, baptism, and communion. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys, stay tuned. You're watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. We've got our friend John Mark Hicks with us. Uh, I have said it once before, and it's worth repeating again. My favorite episode that we filmed on Remnant Radio uh, was with John Mark Hicks. It was a year or two years ago. We filmed it on uh, on communion and the Eucharist. No, with the sacrament of the assembly was what we were talking about. We mentioned the Eucharist a little bit in that video, and we talked about gathering together with the saints in one place. It's a powerful video. You need to go watch it if you haven't. Again, one of my favorite videos of all time. It's got few views on it because it, we published it when we didn't have a massive audience. So uh, anyway, it's a, it's a really cool video. You guys should go check it out. But before we dive into our episode today and I uh, introduce to you uh, uh, John Mark, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the ministry, you've been blessed by this episode or other content we've produced, you can always give in the links of the description. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or you can be a reoccurring giver on Patreon as low as five bucks a month to get access to extra content there on Patreon. Uh, we just uploaded three videos. One, uh, Stuart Graves from uh, IHOP on false justice. We uploaded a video uh, from Lou Engel on abortion. We uploaded a video from Misty Edwards on prophetic worship. And then me and Michael just filmed a video about his new book that's coming out. We kind of uh, talked a little bit about the that book, when we would expect to see it, how he's, how he's working on it since we haven't heard anything about the book for a little bit. So all that stuff is on Patreon. So I'd encourage you guys to go check that out. Wow, that was enough monologue to start off the show. Uh, as you can see right there in the middle, we've got John Mark Hicks with us and Michael on the far end. Uh, before I introduce John Mark, Michael, what do we have to look forward to in the next couple episodes of Remnant? Well, uh, what do we have to look forward to? So uh, tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna play Stuart. Is it uh, Stuart Greaves? I think is his name, right? Not Graves. Greaves um, is probably right. Anyway, but uh, he, he's taken over from Mike Bickle at IHOP. And so uh, we talked to him about, he wrote a book about justice. What is justice? Is biblical justice, social justice? Kind of talked through some of those issues. That'll be uh, released tomorrow. And then Wednesday, uh, Josh, did we get a confirmation from Chris Reed on the show? I do believe we have a confirmation from Chris, yeah. Okay, so, you know, uh, here at Remnant Radio, when we offer a critique, we try to offer it in a lovingly brotherly way, in a loving brotherly way. And uh, and so, guess what? We offered a critique to uh, to some of the words that uh, that Chris Reed was sharing uh, last week, and and we also had some positive things to say too. But we just uh, what we say here is we like to call balls and strikes. And so uh, anyway, Chris thought it was a great video and uh, was willing to come on the show. And he's going to respond to some of our critiques was yeah, I can feel like we were being fair Did he feel like we were being harsh. And so we're going to talk through that on Wednesday. What were you gonna say, Josh? I just say I can beardly believe that he is asked to come on because uh, it's gonna be really exciting. Um, I, <laughs> it's, I I, I could barely believe it. Anyway, John Mark, can you introduce us to yourself? Tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the subject today. Yes, I'm John Mark Hicks, and I teach at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been teaching in higher education among churches of Christ for 40 years and have been writing and publishing within my community. And one of the main emphases uh, that I've had over the years is try to help my my community uh, have a healthier, more robust, deeper sense of sacrament or ordinance, whatever language uh, fits best in your tradition. 
but to to try to find a way to to experience the sacraments in ways that um, enable us to connect with what God is doing in that moment. And that's been part of what I've been doing uh, over the years. I have um, my wife, Jennifer, and we have, we share five kids together. We have two deceased kids uh, and we have five grandchildren. So we're doing well. God is blessing us. Man, well, awesome. you, you mentioned your community. Um, is, did you mean your denominational community? Uh, and if so, like, whence denomination yeah. do you hail? <laughs> well, I, I am a member, uh, part of, grew up in, part of Churches of Christ, which is a part of the Restoration Movement, or sometimes called the Stone Campbell Movement, that has kind of three uh, iterations. Uh, Churches of Christ, which generally more conservative, uh, then we have Disciples of Christ, more on the progressive side. And then in the middle uh, are the Christian churches. Um, and, you know, churches of Christ and Christian churches are very similar these days, although there are differences. But that's that's the tradition in which I grew up and which I have served over the years. Okay. So um, can you talk to us a little bit, uh, Dr. Hicks, about you, one of the things you said at the beginning was that you know, you said whether you use the word sacrament or ordinance in your tradition. Yeah. Uh, but having read uh, your book, uh, let's see. Okay, I would. Is it come to the table, dip in the water? To help me uh, <laughs> that's close. <laughs> You're very close. But we it's, put we put enter the water first, and then we go enter, enter the water, and then and. and Enter the water and come to the table. Okay. Yeah, Michael yeah, wouldn't know that distinction because he gives his yeah. kids communion before they've been baptized. So, oh, uh, oh, a, oh, oh there you go. Out. Josh intends uh, that as a as a burn, but uh, <laughs> that's cool. But um, just kidding, bro. I I know from your book that uh, that you prefer the prefer the language of sacrament over ordinance, even though it doesn't bother you either way. And you, mm -hmm. I know you you. You work a lot kind of ecumenically, and, and you want to help churches come together. That's a big part of your heart, so you're not going to just die on a hill of a word. But why do you prefer the word sacrament over ordinance? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I like both, and I think both are true. It's a both-and sort of thing. But they have different emphases. And I, I would want to say it this way, that um, it is an, uh, an ordinance because it is a sacrament. That is, God gives us this gift, calls us into this activity, calls us into this experience, because God wants to do something there. And in calling us, it, is an, uh, it functions as an ordinance. That is, we, we respond, we react, we answer that, that call. And so it becomes a, an act of obedience to eat and drink, to be baptized, but the significance and the importance of doing such um, has to be more than just kind of mere uh, obedience. It's not just a mere moral example. God calls us to obey because God wants to do something. And so I prefer sacrament because it emphasizes what God is doing in that moment. Now, ordinance emphasizes what we are doing. And it's a both and, it's not an either or. Uh, but I, I want to use the word sacrament, and I'm not tied to it. I'm not bound to it. Somebody doesn't like using that word. I'm okay because, you know, the word sacrament has a lot of different meanings to different people. So it's all in the eye of the beholder there. What do you mean by sacrament? That's my first question when somebody says, you know, do you believe in the sacrament? Well, what do you mean? By, what are you talking about when you say sacrament? And what I'm talking about is um, something God has appointed with his by God's word, to which God has attached promises, something material in creation. God has attached promises and that God is going to, to work through that activity, through that encounter, through that moment to do something that is eschatological and gospel, that is it's Christological, um, and we receive it by faith. And God, And there's something that actually happens when we do that. And it's something that God does by the Spirit uh, as we respond to what God is doing in obedience. So, okay, so I you prefer said, sacrament because of that. 
You I'm said sorry? that God is doing something. Like he's there's something that's taking place. We we were just accused. Yeah. We did a, an episode with Francis Chan recently where we talked about you know something taking place in the Eucharist, not mm. not transubstantiation, not consubstantiation, but just some kind of mysterious something, right? Anyway, so we articulated like God's spirit working through the sacraments, which is a pretty historic position. I don't think that you have to stretch anything to anyway. Someone on a discernment channel thought we were like Lutheran and like, uh, anyway, dissected the video. It was pretty funny uh, to watch. But but how do we like, is there a danger in viewing this in this kind of like really supernatural spooky way that the spirit is somehow attached to the sacraments and power or that something is being accomplished? Yeah. Is there a way that we can get sucked into a kind of spooky spiritualism uh and then i guess on the other side if you view that ordinance side and really heavy on that can this just be a dead ritual and yeah so just speak into those two sides for us real quick yeah on the first side there's always a danger i mean anything good can be used for evil right i mean there's always a danger of warping something so yeah there's clearly a danger of using uh the sacrament whether baptism or Lord's Supper, as a talisman, as something magical, as something we can manipulate God with, or we could draw a line in the sand for God and say, okay, God, now you got to do this, or obligate God, or trick God. You know, I mean, clearly that's always the danger, right? And then on the other side is the, is the danger that, okay, this is anthropocentric. This is just about us. You know, at the table, we remember we proclaim and that both of those are both true um but is that all it is is not god not doing anything and so that becomes that for me becomes the real question uh when we're talking about sacramentality what is god doing when i eat that bread what is god doing is god just a spectator is god just watching and saying oh good job thank you for doing that you know um, here's your reward. Um, or is God actually participating in some way? Is God actually engaging, encountering, communing? And, and when, we, when we say God is communing in that moment, we don't mean, I hope, that it is some kind of representation of God's communing, but that it is actually a real communion with God. And, and it seems to me that all traditions can affirm that. Now, you know, you got the extremes mingling in, memorialist sort of thing, and, and they might have a hard time affirming that, but all traditions can affirm for the most part that when we commune at the table of the Lord, there is something real happening in terms of the communion between God and God's people and between the people themselves who are sitting around that table in a metaphorical sense, um, perhaps even a literal sense, which is something I would prefer myself. But the, the reality of the event means that God is participating. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 10 says, it seems to me, that the bread which we break, is it not a communion? Is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ and, and the cup? Is it not a when we drink it, is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ? So unless we want to take communion, take koinonia and, you know, defang it, you might say, or reduce it or, or uh, suck out all the, all the sense of reality, what's left with the communion? Uh, that, that becomes what's, what's left with something of, what is God doing at, in this moment? And that becomes, to me, the real question. Okay. Uh, one of the things that you say in your book, I'm going to read a quote. You say, uh, these, these elements, they're not sub, uh, and particularly the act of participating in communion or, for that matter, baptism. Uh, they are not substitutes for discipleship or transformation, but rather moments of divine encounter through which we are moved along the path of discipleship towards sanctification. So, uh, so it seems you, you have, you, you just talked about communion, that there's a fellowship, there's a meeting with God. And now you use the word encounter here. I think that that language, a lot of our audience is charismatic, although certainly a lot of them mm -hmm. are not, but uh, that language of encounter is very attractive to a charismatic. 
But when a charismatic thinks about encountering the Holy Spirit, they typically imagine themselves doing this number right here, hands yep. outstretched, yep. dancing in the aisle. <laughs> they're, they're imagining that. They're not sure. imagining opening up, a, you know, like a, a small little grape juice container and a wafer and getting rocked by the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, yeah. they're thinking, you, you know what, it actually feels... Uh, I'm I'm just going to put this in in the most crass terminology of your like average low church charismatic to you know and we're uh, anyway hey I'm charismatic but the average <laughs> person is is going to say I I don't encounter God during that it it feels yeah. stale like the wafer I just ate so yeah help well, us that wafer out. is stale yeah so help <laughs> us that, out oh how oh, how oh, does oh, you know we'll, we'll talk communion for now. How does okay, this... I'm going to get excited here. This you're asking me an exciting question. I mean, I, I really want to get at this. Okay. One. Um, so, how does this become encounter? Oh, what does this look? Because like? it's what it's God is doing. Okay. Now, so encounter is something where where God acts. Right. Now, encounter can come in a lot of ways, and I and I get your point that as some people hear the word encounter, they hear it in a particular frame, and a frame like a worship assembly where you have a praise song that is just rocking and, and now I encounter God or so, you know, but I can, I can encounter God in lament as well, as well as in that assembly. Um, I can encounter God at a funeral, at a, at a lament at a funeral. Mm -hmm. So there are different ways in which the word encounter can be contextualized and um, experienced. So I think the problem is the way we expect to um, experience something is the lens by which we interpret what we experience, right? The, the worldview we bring to it, the biblical theology we bring to it. If we bring a Eucharistic theology that has been um, saturated with a kind of funeral, funeral, funeral atmosphere, kind of dirge atmosphere, a silent, um, somber, don't talk, you know, kind of world of eating the Lord's Supper. It, it, it sounds like a table that is designed for individuals, right, and for sadness. And I think if, when we, because we've been socialized to think about it that way, and we have experienced it that way in our communions, um, yeah, this is not encounter because encounter is this thing over here for me. Mm -hmm. But let me, what I would want to suggest is that we broaden our understanding of encounter. Encounter doesn't mean simply or only, I shouldn't say simply, but doesn't mean only when we, um, are get, when we get pumped up, right? Mm -hmm. Encounter also means when we're being formed when we're being formed by the spirit and we're being cruciformed by the body and blood of Christ. And we're being called into a resurrection life because the living body of Christ is present at this table and the living body of Christ is nourishing us. So it seems to me that we need a better theology and we need a better explanation of what to call people into and we need a better practice a practice that actually um where we actually do and see this reality come to life among us uh resurrection life among us so mm -hmm. it's about the theology that we bring to it and it's about the practice we bring to it so for example i heard i heard you on the i don't know which podcast it was but i've been listening to a few and uh, there was one podcast where you quoted Psalm 74 and talked about how people in the West don't expect this. So they don't get it, right? They don't find it. Uh, they're not expecting prophecy, so they don't get prophecy. Um, mm -hmm. Well, if you come to the table and what you expect is a funeral and you expect God to be a spectator and you expect God to just kind of receive our offering in the sense of, we're doing this because you said to do it, but we don't really feel anything when we do it. 
um, then yeah, you know, maybe encounter isn't going to happen in that same in the sense in which you're expecting, um, mm-hmm. or you, you typically expect encounter to, to do it. So I think it's a, a better theology and a better practice where we can practice um, table, where we can practice what table is about, what how table functions. Because the way we do it with the, and I hate them, you know, I use them too, but I, but I don't like them. The little sip it cups and the little strip off. And <laughs> I, I understand, you know, it's the Listerine strip wafer, oh, whatever. <laughs> there you go. Um, I understand why we use them and I, and I get it. But even with that, if we have a good theology, here's, here's, when I'm eating, when I'm taking that little sippet cup and scratching off that, that little wafer and that styrofoam that goes in my mouth, as, as minimalist as that is, which I don't like, God can still act. God doesn't depend on, you know, whether we're passing a tray or whether we're going up to the table or whether we're using a piece of styrofoam. God doesn't depend on that. God can still act. And so it's, it's, it's how the, our faith is oriented to receive what God has given, what God is going to give us in this moment. Are we going to be open to that and receive it? And I think that's part of it as well. Hmm. And, and at the same time, I would want to say, you may not know you got it, but you probably did. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so- uh, you received some nourishment there, even though you didn't feel a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you didn't feel a thing, God gave you something in that moment. Yeah, J.B. Fesco, in an interview that we did with him recently, I, I pulled out a quote from his, his book, Word, Water, Spirit. Uh, and he said something like, um, there are no neutral encounters with God, whether yeah. that be in word or in sacrament. So that we believe as as Protestants as evangelicals, that when the word is rightly preached, when the word of God goes forward, something is happening there, right? It doesn't we, we, return void. It doesn't return yeah. void. Something is is there. And in the same way that the word is is commanded to preach at our assembly, that it something, mm-hmm. God's partnering with it in some way. But this, is, this kind of leads me to Jared's question, Jared Greer. Uh, he asked this question. He said, according to John Mark, what is the spirit doing exactly in communion? And 1 Corinthians 10s mentions koinonia, but it doesn't mention the spirit. Uh, what verse talks about the Spirit's agency in this? So I, I think this is a really good question to ask mm. when it comes to baptism, when it comes to communion. Is the Spirit working in this? Um, and, and how can we justify that articulation? Yeah, um, well, when it comes to the Spirit, in terms of baptism, we do have some texts that correlate that in some way, like First uh, Corinthians 6, 11, um, you were washed in the Spirit, right? You were washed in the spirit, in the name of Jesus, or Titus 3, bath of regeneration, renewing of the spirit. So there are associations, and even in the book of Acts, uh, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There, And when Cornelius receives the spirit, he's then baptized. And when those who had never heard of the spirit, uh, they're baptized and receive the spirit. So they're connected. Now, when it comes to communion, uh, Jared's question, first, um, first Corinthians chapter 10, the communion I think we have to think about Paul's theology. When Paul thinks about communion theologically, who does he associate that with? Think about the, the benediction of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. That is the participation, the notion of participation and partaking. How do I partake in union with Christ? How do I connect with Christ? Well. Ephesians 5 verse, I mean, Ephesians 2 verse 18 says, in him, we have access to the Father through the Spirit. So we go to the Father through the Spirit in Christ. So the Spirit is the one who inhabits us. And by that inhabitation, God inhabits us. We, God dwells in us. We are the temple. God dwells in us by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we have access to the Father in Christ. So the uh, Trinitarian, the triune role of the spirit, you might say, the economic role of the spirit 
is to be that connector, to be the one who communes. And so when we think about the Eucharist as a communion, I mean, that's like Paul signaling, think spirit, right? Think spirit. It is a communion in the body of Christ. But how does that happen? In the spirit, through the spirit, by the power of the spirit, by what the spirit does in us and among us. Um, so that's how I would justify it and how I would think about the spirit as as the efficacy. The efficacy is not in the bread. It's not the bread. It's not the material creation, the bread, and it's not the water. It's the spirit who is acting that gives efficacy. And that's why it's a personal encounter. That's why baptism is a personal encounter, why Eucharist is a personal encounter, because through the spirit, we have access to the father in Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, so, Dr. Hicks, one of the things you, you quoted several verses in Acts that connected uh, washing and regeneration, and then you quoted Acts 2.38, and repent and uh, be baptized, and your sins will be wiped away, I think is what it says, but something to that effect. But mm-hmm. you, you connected the washing of our sins away with the washing of baptism. So uh, before I did come into charismatic world, I was a, I was a good Southern Baptist. And mm-hmm. uh, we Southern Baptists got nervous about that language, of course, whenever we encountered it in the Scripture. We found lots of ways to say, well, it, it doesn't really mean that. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so here, here's the deal. But in all seriousness, uh, it, it, still today, I, I have those roots. I have this understanding that, that real, I mean, regeneration, if we want to be like purists about it, happens at the moment of, uh, at the moment of, of faith. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think of Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11, where the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's, he's regenerated, and it's afterward that he's baptized in water. But I noticed in your book, and, and, and being that you're from the Church of Christ tradition, you know, we typically understand Church of Christ is like no baptism, no salvation. Uh, the yeah. two are, uh, go together. But you seem to speak with nuance on that issue. You speak on one hand about, hey, let, let's let the Scripture speak for itself, that baptism really is doing something. It, it, and you speak of it as being part of conversion, but you also use the language of faith takes the primacy. Yeah, Could you just unpack exactly. that for us and how you would nuance that as a Church of Christ theologian? Yes, I, I think for me, and, and this would be true of, of even some of the best of our her- my heritage in Churches of Christ, uh, like Andrews, Alexander Campbell himself said that faith is the primary, right? And baptism is an expression of faith. So faith is, does have primacy here, and we need, to, we need to emphasize that and to say, you know, it is through faith that we come into Christ and that we um, uh, express our allegiance and affirm our allegiance. And at the same time, the realistic language of baptism as something effectual by the Spirit, by what God is doing, not by what I'm doing but that it is effectual by what God is doing, that language is there. And so what do we do with that? How do we, how do we nuance that? Well, it seems to me that, that baptism becomes this, and this is what sacraments are, right? They are these material realities that we can empirically embrace and we can touch and feel and we can come up out of the water and the water itself has... Um, an impact on us, an empirical impact on us as a sign to what God is doing, not just to what God has done, but what God is still doing and is going to continue to do in our lives. So that in the Eucharist, we eat the the bread as a means by which we encounter God for fuller sanctification, for greater sanctification. Now, I do think baptism is a part of the process of conversion. It's and I'm not wanting so much to get into a time measurement of that as I am to say, yes, faith is primary and baptism is a part of the process and it has meaning and significance and God is doing something. And God has given us this gift of baptism in order to form us in some way, to form us, to meet us, to encounter us, 
uh, to forgive us. And that is what I would want to emphasize. And I think it's parallel to the Eucharist in that sense, that there's something real going on there. Um, and it is for our sake that God gives us this gift uh, where we can experience the reality of God's grace. Now, you, you mentioned a, just... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. In a tangible way, in an empirical yeah. way, right? Now, you, you mentioned sacraments, and, and we have tons of different traditions watching the program, um, and everyone's going to draw that line of sacrament in a different place. Uh, I would say a, yeah. a vast swath of evangelicals will go, hey, we're going to go communion and baptism, right? We're just going to go stick with two, because R- Roman Catholics wanted to make everything a sacrament, right? You got some people in, in specific denominations that will go anointing with oil is a sacrament. Uh, some will say marriage is a sacrament. Uh, in, in our video with you, we talked about the assembly itself being a sacrament, I believe. Mm-hmm. And and so give us the criteria for what you would define a sacrament to be. I think you give seven criteria. And then could you uh, not, o- not only give us those seven criteria, but just tell us how many sacraments do you think there are? Oh, wow. You want to step right into the historical flow here. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. a huge question, right? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, in my book, I give seven. I think I would add an eighth. You know, books are always incomplete. You always think of more to say when and something else I'd want to say. So one, I think a sacrament one has to have a material component. It has to be embodied in some way, like assembly. That's bodies together, right? Um, second, the, the sacrament needs to, the, the materiality needs to signify something. It needs, it needs to uh, point beyond itself. It's pointing to something else. It's it's not the reality in itself. It points to something. Um, and, and what it points to is given by the word of God. So another point I want to add is that, uh, that this is an explicit promise from God. God is promising something here and is attached a promise to it. And it is by the word of God. And so it's very kind of reformed, very Lutheran kind of. You know, the word and the promise go, go together. The word and the sacrament go together because there's a promise. So if there's not a promise, then, then I have a hard time calling it a sacrament per se. But another point would be the sacrament is a means of grace. That is, it's an instrument of God's work in us and among us. Um, and it's done by the power of the Spirit. That would be another part of how I would define a sacrament. Uh, and it's also eschatological. That is... The reality that we experience is an eschatological reality. We experience the living Christ at the table. We experience the death and resurrection in baptism. In the assembly, we, we experience the eschatological assembly, the multitude that cannot be counted from every language, tribe, and nation. So we experience the, the reality of the new creation in baptism, which, which I think is what makes it different from a shower or makes it different from a Thanksgiving meal with the family, uh, because it, those are good things. We experience good things when we have a Thanksgiving meal with the family. At least I hope we do. I mean, sometimes that's not true, right? But we, we do uh, experience the goodness of creation and the goodness of God at a, at a family Thanksgiving meal. But that's not Eucharist. Because what Eucharist is, is not only the goodness of food, bread and wine, but the Eucharist is also the goodness of new creation and the reality of of the resurrected Christ being nourished by the life of Christ, the blood blood of Christ and the body of Christ, the living Christ, right? So, So new creation, eschaton, has to be a part of this, it seems to me. And it needs to be Christological. It needs to be connected to the gospel in some way, the death and resurrection of Christ or the presence of the living Christ um, and received by faith. So if I if I define sacrament sort of in that way, that it is a material reality appointed by God and conjoined with the promise of God through the word to signify an eschatological reality, which we experience through that material reality, by the power of the spirit as we trust in the work of Christ. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, If that is true, then it seems to me in the strictest sense, uh, it is baptism 
the Lord's Supper, and I would include assembly. And historically, the church has as well. It's just that the Eucharist and the assembly have often been so tied together uh, that that's where Eucharist happens is in assembly. Um, so I, yeah. in that sense, I think there are three. But let me add something. I would want to make a distinction between sacrament and sacramentality. Sacramentality is is the very function of creation itself. Creation mediates the presence of God among us. Amen. So marriage has a sacramental dimension because it mediates the presence of God. It mirrors the reality of God as the good creator of the world and who creates marriage um, for the union of man and woman, right? So uh, there's a sacramentality that is pervasive in creation that is the foundation of the goodness of creation. And so there's a lot of things in which uh, we could see the sacramentality. I mean, that Thanksgiving meal is, a, is in that sense a sacramental meal in the sense of the goodness of creation. But it's not a sacrament in the sense of of the promise of God attached to that meal, the promise that Christ will be present and the promise that Christ will nourish us and feed us uh, his body and blood uh, to give us life and hope and assurance and comfort. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, I I love how fulsome your definition is. In fact, uh, Dr. Hicks, you actually inspired uh, Josh and and Michael Miller, one of our other co-hosts, and I. We did a show uh, about a, maybe a little over a year ago uh, where we considered the anointing with oil. There's that charismatic coming out again, uh, but yeah. we saw, I mean, eschatological significance in this because healing points to the resurrection when our bodies are made whole. We see the material mm -hmm. dimension of this. We see the presence of Christ mediated through this and, and means of grace. I mean, we saw all these things like, yeah, I, I'd feel comfortable calling this a sacrament. So yeah, I, I love your definition. I think it's really helpful. Uh, what I'd yeah. like to do, though, I'm not going to oh, fudge go on that. I mean, I, I can see the point. I, yeah, I can see that point. I'm um, going to make you charismatic over here. <laughs> well, I'm already charismatic in another way, so you know. Uh, okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, I'm just kidding. So, so I want to I want to shift gears because you you spend a lot of time in your book talking through. I mean, you basically go from Genesis to Revelation. One of the statements I picked out was, uh, and I'd love for you to explain to us: created life was baptismal in origin and Eucharistic in character. So, mm -hmm. I'd love for you to explain. Yeah. What did you mean by that? So that's in creation. But then maybe right. you could even walk us beyond that through the meal on Sinai and Levitical washings yeah. and Passover and all the rest and just how the whole Bible is pointing to sacrament and ultimately to Jesus. Wait a second. He said my question was loaded. You you said, can you just point Dude. the whole Bible? I'll just summarize the <laughs> whole I, I give Bible Josh, and point it to the sacraments. Yes, I, I, I give Josh a hard time for sneaking extra questions in. But Josh, okay. what can I say? I learned it from the best. Oh my god. There goodness. you go. I am. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. I, I mean, I like that question because I, I do think there's a sacramental journey through the whole of Scripture. Um, and that that journey is about the goodness of creation, which I've already talked about. But let me start where you where you mentioned. Um, that is, the world was created out of the waters, right? It came out of the waters. The waters dissipated and were collected. Um, and then the life in the garden was a Eucharistic life. It was, and this is not original with me. I mean, I, I read that I think first in. Alexander Shumaymon, the Eastern Orthodox theologian, in his book, For the Life of the World. Uh, but life is Eucharistic. It's about food and drink. The water is in the garden. The, the, the fruit of the tree is in the garden. It's about creation. Uh, we're being priests in the garden, and we are mediating the praise of creation to God. Um, so there's, there's so much to say about that. There is a sacramental dimension to our life in the garden. But then we moved east of Eden, right? And mm -hmm. God's presence pursues us. And um, 
I think the Exodus 24 text is really significant. For In my mind, Exodus 24 is the way Israel thought about their sacrifices and their sacrificial meals because you have a burnt offering there that is offered. You burn everything up to God. You dedicate everything to God. But there's also fellowship offerings or well-being offerings, the peace offerings, depending on translation. But those are sacrifices you eat. And, and the language that's used in the Exodus 24 text is language that is used by Jesus at the Last Supper. So he makes the connection not just to the Passover, but to this originating sacrificial meal on Mount Sinai, where it is said that Moses and the 70 elders, along with Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, saw God and says it twice, twice. That's how in Hebrew you say, this is really important, right? They saw God, they experienced God, and that the sacrifices of Israel were themselves um, moments of encounter with God, rejoicing in the presence of God. That's Deuteronomy 27, verses 6 and 7. Rejoicing in the, and eating and drinking in the presence of God. That's what we do when, when we're at the table. We're, we have the same sort of table that is that Israel had, but it's fulfilled in Christ. It's from creation to new creation, right? Uh, the goodness of creation, food and drink at the table of Israel. But now the food and drink is the life of Jesus Christ, of new creation, the resurrected life. So there's a deep connection there that goes into the new heaven and new earth as well. The messianic banquet where they're going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they're going to sit down with Abraham at the table of the Lord. Wow. You know, that mm -hmm. the great joy that is present in Israel, the great joy that's present in creation, the great joy that is present in um, the new heaven and new earth. And how do we eat the table? How do we eat the table of the Lord in our communities? With sadness. You know, to me, that's that's a that's a real problem. It's like we're eating the Lord's Supper on Sunday, like it's still Friday, but it's not Friday anymore. It's Sunday. Say it again and for the people the in the back. And the wine, I'm sorry. I said say it again for the people in the back, Pastor. No, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a charismatic <laughs> okay. amen. Keep going. Yeah, we are not. <laughs> it's, it's Sunday. You know, we're not on Friday anymore. We can remember Friday. We can be thankful for Friday. We can boast in the cross. Absolutely. But when we're at the table of the Lord, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the death of Christ, which is good news. Right? It's not bad news. It's not sad news. It's good news. And we proclaim the gospel at the table of the Lord. And we encounter the living Christ. That, um, that should change the mood of the table, it seems to me. Okay. If we're thinking, if we have the theology of the living Christ, then we're not sad at the table and looking down at our little cups, you know, and taking them, finagling them. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think we're ready to shout celebrate and speak to one another and pray for one another and eat and drink with one another like we like we do at a table you know this is a table by the way you know that's supposed to be part of the point so let me let okay, me ask this i'm, I'm off I, my soapbox there i, I know i want to i want to be a wet blanket to your to your joy and glee when talking okay. at the table and break up first corinthians 11 it looks like folk died and he's like yeah. hey you should examine yourself before you take the table. There's this phrase, I'm going to read this, you know, whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's intense. Let a person yeah. examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe know. that. But but when I, I read that it. passage, I don't go dancing and jumping, you know, with like da you Davidic like know? glee before the ark. <laughs> you know, I, I I fear and trembling approach the burning bush. So so help mm. us suss that out, because I think you're right. Yeah. Something something in what you're saying, I go there. There is a lot of truth in that. And I think that's good. But but help us contrast that with sure. drinking judgment, sure. you know? Well, yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I mean, it's really important question. And uh, that needs to be addressed. So we don't want to suck out 
the judgment. I mean, that's there. But why is it there? It's there because of the way they were doing communion. They were doing communion in a divisive way. They were doing communion in a way that stratified the congregation between rich and poor, those who had those who got drunk and those who uh, had nothing to eat. So the the problem in Corinth was was not so much they didn't have the right introspection going on. The problem in Corinth is they didn't have the right social reality around the table. They were using the table to divide and they were having their own supper instead of the Lord's supper, right? So when I hear the text, examine yourselves, I don't think of that as introspection. I think that's more of a medieval notion that it's about introspection. I think that's more about you as a community, pay attention to what you're doing here. Because if you do this in a way that undermines the gospel, that subverts the gospel, such as what you're doing by stratifying the congregation and excluding the poor. If you do it that way, that's going to be judgment on you. And that has serious consequences. Now, I think it's the same sort of thing when we talk about preaching of the word. When, when we preach the word, it can be received with joy or it can be received badly, right? It can be received um, with flippancy, it can be received with hypocrisy, it can be received, you know, I think about Psalm 50, where God says, gather my holy ones, and then Psalm 50 says, I don't come here to celebrate you, I come here to judge you, because you have your, you, you have the Torah on your lips, but you don't have it in your heart, you're not practicing it, and so the word of God can judge us that same way, and so the table can judge us too, and just as there's a reality that comes from preaching the word of God, a work of the spirit that flows from, from God's word. So there's a work of the spirit that can work judgment or it can work grace um, in terms of how we receive it. So I, I, I want to affirm the judgment text and say, yes, let's be serious about this. Let's receive this in faith. But this is a faith that celebrates the living Christ and proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So we can celebrate that. But if we receive it with hypocrisy, like in 1 Corinthians 10, you can't sit at the table of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time. You try to do it that way. Yeah, that's going to be judgment. Uh, but if you receive it as the living Christ and in commitment to the living Christ to be a disciple of Jesus, that's great joy. Amen. So be serious about it, but but also um, remember serious that this joy. is the living Christ. There is joy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, there's so many things I want to touch on, but uh, <clears throat> we have about 10 minutes left in the show, and I think that it would be important for us to get to what you close your book with, which is a, a renewed vision for the sacraments. You talk about a renewed vision for baptism, a renewed vision for the Lord's Supper, so maybe just start us out with baptism for now. Um, and, and the way you talk about it is like, if I could just have my wish and churches yeah. would just <laughs> practice the sacraments as John Mark Hicks says they should, um, then I wish they would do this. So you give us a little wish list and then you unpack that wish list. So I'd love for you to do that for us and give your theological reasons, if you could, for why you want to do it this way and not that way. And all, all the little kind of nuances of it. Could you could you do that for us? Sure. Well, we only got ten minutes, you know, but <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Um, when it when it comes to baptism, I, I really want to to um, uh, my wish list. Okay. Well, it ain't gonna happen because I it's not my church, and I, I live in a community, so we have to live in community in a way that we listen to each other. But okay, my wish list. I would like to have a liturgy for baptism, a liturgy for baptism that that um, calls people into the story where they can tell their story. They can bear witness to what God has done in their life and what brings them to this moment where they can confess the story of God. Um, maybe even the recitation of the Apostles Creed or, you know, maybe if something that the second century and third century church did. You know, do you believe in God? 
Yes, I believe in God the Mighty, God the Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. You know, something that elongates this moment instead of being a, a dip and zip, you know, let's let's get you in the water and get out. Um, let's mm-hmm. marinate this moment with theology and with testimony and with hymnology. And um, so I'd really like to kind of bring us, bring at least in my culture, in my tradition, um, more of a litur- liturgical, and I don't mean that in a formal sense, but, but more of an extended, marinated immersion, not just into the water, but into the story of God. When it comes to Eucharist, oh, here's the you know this is a real problem because uh, we have we have centuries of formation, social formation, as well as theological formation. Uh, I would really love to restore the joy, most of all, to that moment. Um, I would love to restore the kind of community sense, the communal sense to that moment. Um, I would I would also like. I would love to restore the table, and even if it's just a symbol up there in the front. You know, it used to be churches always had tables up in the front, um, at least in my context. But we're getting rid of the tables and just using the little drinks for our symbols. Um, but if I really had my wish, I would I would want to do something more like this, to be more like the early church, as I as I think about it. As I understand it, more like the Jerusalem church where, OK, you may get together 3000 of you in the temple, whether they all did that at once or not. Who knows? But you can get together in the temple. Absolutely. Let's praise God. Let's listen to the apostles. Let's hear the teaching of the word. Let's pray together. So prayer and praise and word. But then the Jerusalem church went home to break bread. And they broke bread in their homes, and that's how I understand. I understand that Eucharistically, not everybody does. But if I had my wish list, I would I wouldn't necessarily take out the big corporate rip and snip, you know, sip. Uh, but um, that that would be still there because God can God still does something there in that. But if I wanted to um, encourage the fuller experience of the table, I'd put it at a table. And I'd put it in a small group. And I would have the bread and wine in a community, in an intimate community, uh, where we can call call each other brother and sister and uh, live out that moment of the Last Supper, um, live out of community at a table. And I would include food, you know, myself. Um, but that may be a whole nother story. But so I want to I, I would I would like to have that table back. And what I do with my students um, uh, for for COVID hit and things changed a little bit. and We went more online. Uh, I would always at the end of class have a table. We'd have a table meal with the Lord's Supper, with with the bread and wine and experience the Eucharist as a table, which would take us an hour and a half, you know, because what happens at that table is not, okay, take the bread and now let's talk about Alabama football or something. But no, let's let's talk about who God is. Let's talk about our experience of God. Let's talk about who Christ is and how the Holy Spirit is present and who we're having communion with. Because part of communion is having communion not just with those who are sitting around the table. It's about having communion with the whole church. And it's about having communion. It's about being at the eschatological messianic banquet where where my son is, where our loved ones are who have gone before us. We're going to sing holy, holy, holy with them, and we're going to sit down and eat with them. And we do that by the Spirit in an eschatological way when we sit at the table together. So that's my wish list. If I, if I could do it, hey. And I do do it. I, I do uh, have those moments. I, um, For example, uh, for, a, for quite a number of years, I had my Bible class, uh, like 100 people, and um, my wife and I would bring two couples home every Sunday and we would have a Lord's Supper meal after church every Sunday. Now, we had, you know, we have weekly communion in Churches of Christ and we had our big assembly communion. But 
We also came to my house, sat around a table, and had a Eucharistic meal as well. So if I had my way, but I, but I don't get my way. Man, man, I, I love that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you get your way. You, you have your cake and you eat it too. It sounds like you're you know inviting people over to your own house and yep. and doing that. You, but what I like about that is that I feel like it embodies what the table always has been. I mean, even thinking of its roots in Passover, you gathered together as a family and you ate together as a family. And when we look back at what Christ did when he inaugurated uh, uh, the, the, the Eucharist, when he started this, this whole process, he's like, Hey, uh, this, this is the new covenant, the, the, the blood of the new covenant, the body of the new covenant. This is, this is what's going on here. And that was done in the context of a community. And, and we've taken just the elements without that communal piece. And then, as you mentioned in the new Jerusalem, we're not going to be standing, you know, in single file, uh, you know, line as they pass wafers, we're going to be sitting at a table at dining at the marriage supper of the lamb. So I, to, to, connect it in that kind of cohesive piece um, to say that, you know, and, and the question I think comes down to, and I like, I like that you said that you didn't want to get rid of the service thing. And I think that that is an important a note for people who might be hearing us in kind of an anarchy way, like burn the whole Eucharistic system down. That's not what we're saying. Right. No, um, no, no, no. Don't you know, but man, God I, still I like, does something. but it also does something. I like that this idea where we're like, if if we're trying to infuse meaning into the Eucharist, like like if we're trying to infuse, no, we're trying to recognize. We're not trying to put something in there that's not there. We're trying to recognize right. what it's always meant to be and what it's pointing us to. We ought to live it out and, and, and cherish it in a, such a way that pragmatism of we have to have a 35-minute service, you know, that, 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 that pragmatism doesn't completely obliterate the meaningfulness of those sacramental elements. So, man, I, I commend right. you for it. I think that that it sounds, um, it sounds right. Um, I, I, I like yeah, we're that. Not, we're, not trying to, we're not trying to pour something external from the culture into the table. We're right. trying to more fully experience what the table is and Amen. what we see in Scripture, what it is, what we saw it in Israel. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 18, after he, after he has that little quote about the Lord's Supper, he then says, consider Israel. Those who eat the who eat the sacrifices participate. They have poinonia, right, in the altar. So what we're trying to do is is see in Israel the fuller experience of this, where they ate with God, rejoicing and celebrating. You know, there's joy in Israel. There's joy in the new heaven and earth. Oh, may God have mercy. There ought to be joy at the table of the Lord. Amen. I love that. Well, and and also one thing I'm thinking about is that. Uh, one thing I've read is that in church history, that it wasn't sheer pragmatism that led them to go to a little wafer, uh, but also it was a chosen symbol that pointed to the fact that what we have here is a foretaste of the messianic banquet that we one day will dine with mm -hmm. Jesus, Revelation 19, Matthew chapter mm -hmm. 8, Luke chapter 14, and many other passages, Isaiah 25, if you want to go Old Testament. So, uh, but that it's this this foretaste, but I, I like actually kind of mixing that to, to have, let, when we come together with the saints uh, on, on the Lord's day, on a Sunday morning, we can partake of the sacrament and we can, we can do it in a way that it's, it's a foretaste. It maybe emphasizes that element, but then we can emphasize more easily the horizontal dimension of the Lord's supper, our oneness around the table mm -hmm. and with Jesus hosting us at this supper uh, right. we can, we can emphasize the horizontal nature of it more when we do a day in and day out. And I, certainly I, 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 I understand, uh, I won't say certainly, but I personally understand, uh, Acts chapter two, when they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread also Eucharistically, just because of the way Luke so routinely uses that phrase, breaking of bread, yeah. number one, and number two, right. that it's adjacent to the word fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship. If if breaking a bread just meant eating with friends, then that actually would be subsumed by fellowship. It's one and the same. So he actually means to distinguish them that there's the breaking of bread, participation in the Lord's Supper, as well as fellowship. So totally understand that. And I love the way you bring together, like do it on a Sunday morning, but it doesn't have to be just on Sunday morning. Get together with your friends and partake of a meal and share the Lord's Supper with one another. 
So uh, right. I love that. Or if you want to even go a little further and do it the Jesus way, Luke chapter 14, he says, don't invite your friends over. Bring the people who can't repay you, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Then you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, J Jesus' uh, table ministry has something to tell us, it seems to me, about kingdom table etiquette. What is our amen. table etiquette in the kingdom? Yeah. Amen. So much here. Well, uh, Dr. Hicks, thank you so much for yeah, uh, your insights and for uh, for joining us for this show. We really uh, appreciate that. Uh, you guys, I, I encourage you to, to just look him up on Amazon. He has a number of books, a number of them on, on the sacraments specifically. And so I encourage you guys to uh, to look those up, buy his books. And, uh, and so make sure you guys also oh, uh, tune in, that you subscribe, that you hit that like button. And, uh, and if you've been blessed by the content today or you've been continually blessed, certainly please consider uh, donating to Remnant Radio. This stuff ain't free, costs a little dough. So uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, considering that, we have Patreon, which, is, uh, which unlocks uh, some special content just for you, uh, and as well as you can make a one-time donation in PayPal. So number of ways you can, you can donate, all of that is in the description. So I uh, hope you guys will tune in tomorrow uh, for tomorrow's ep episode with Stuart Greaves or Wednesday with Chris Reed. God bless you guys and have a great week. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.